Amen. Please be seated. Scripture today comes from Matthew 28, um, verses 16 and following. Um, So when people were converted to Jesus in the first century and beyond, in the early days of the church, and it lasted literally for hundreds and thousands of years, the practice was to spend one year in instruction. So you, were, you would spend a whole year being instructed in the faith before you could be baptized. And then baptism was accompanied by a confession of faith, often as our, our uh, lecturer told us, uh, it would be the Apostles' Creed or the content of that. And um, you would also, at that time, uh, you'd make that confession and um, you would be baptized on Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday was traditionally the day when new people were added to the number of the church. And that's been true throughout most of our history until recently in the last 100 years or so. And it still happens in other parts of the world that that's when people, uh, their faith is acknowledged They demonstrate over a period of a year, not just their head knowledge, but by their life that they get this, that they've been affected by Jesus and their lives are different. Hear our text. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him But some doubted. It's still going on. After all of his appearances and all the conversation, some people, even in seeing Jesus, still doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go there, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything, all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Pray with me. God, help us to receive all of what you offer. In Jesus' name, amen. In the coming weeks, we will um, deliberate and call and ordain and install elders and deacons. And we will ask them to affirm the following question. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed faith as expressed in the confessions of our church as authentic and reliable expositions of what Scripture leads us to believe and do? And will you be instructed and led by those confessions as you lead the people of God? And we expect our leadership to say yes. It's the same question I was asked when I was ordained. It's the same question that's asked of all elders and deacons in the PCUSA. 
Will you be instructed by our confessions as you lead the people of God? It doesn't say, will you agree with everything in them? It doesn't say, I will, I will pronounce all the different aspects of it, but will you be instructed by all of it? I mean, I, there, there are parts of, of the creeds and I, right up front that I look and go, oh, I don't know. But I can't dismiss it, like I said earlier. I need to let it just sit there and be and still be part of my thinking. Will you be instructed? One person has said, um, has written about this uh, and in uh, Leslie Newbegin, he just says that, that it's the manifesto masterpiece or the great alls of the church. The great alls are these. The breathtaking breathtaking scope of the alls, all authority, all nations, into the name of all the names of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do all that I have asked of you, and I will be with you all, all the days to the end. Think about that. Think about this text in relationship to the alls. All authority, that means every little tiny bit of it. All nations, all present, past, and future. The whole, the, all the names of God, not a pantheon, but God's revelation to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Do all that I have asked of you. Not just the easy parts. And I will be with you all, all the time. Newbegin, in his little book about the Bible, says that the story of the scripture is a story of all people told through the experience of a people. And so we get the sense that even though Israel is a unique and particular group of people, the message to Israel is for all people. It's simply told through the experience of a people. So it's specific. It's real. It's grounded. It's rooted. The breadth of it is breathtaking. When you think of the breadth of what Jesus is telling us, it should take your breath away. Every human being is affected by Jesus' words. His words, his actions, all of it is for the benefit of the world. First, he says, disciple all nations. I was, uh, a couple years ago, we had the privilege of traveling. We were in Italy, and we had gotten up um, a, uh, a tour of the Vatican. 
and we hired a person just it was just our family the four of us and our guide and of course if if you've been there you'll remember um, just the sheer mass of humanity that collects in this place every day and it's just overwhelming how many people are there and I realized that that we had to stay at least I had to my children hear better than I do though their hearing is selective um, they, uh, they, they hear better than I do so I had to stay close to the guide so I wouldn't miss out on what she said. I, I literally had to lean in all the time. So this idea of staying close to the guide, disciple all nations, helping people stay close to the guide is what discipleship's about. So they can hear all the instructions, all the information everything Jesus has to offer, we need to bring ourselves and others close to Jesus so they can hear. Teach or live out all these teachings. So we're supposed to teach them all, all of them, not be selective. So this the Apostles' Creed was written at a time, and one of the people that was in our video that, he, that the instructor talked over was a person by the name of Marcion. Marcion basically looked at the Old Testament and said, we don't need it. It represents a God that the New Testament has superseded. So the Old Testament represents a God that's violent and vindictive. And the New Testament... Um, mostly the Gospel of Luke and, and a few other scattered verses, but, but not the whole thing of the New Testament. He said that, that we just needed that. We just need the representation of a loving God. And the church rejected this and said, no, here's what we know. God the Creator from the beginning, from Genesis on, Jesus, the Savior, the Redeemer, who lived and died in accordance with the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit, the Sustainer, who keeps us going and embodies the very character of God in our hearts and lives. Teach or live out all the teachings of Jesus, all the teachings that were Jesus was rooted. Jesus was rooted. When you talk to, if you think about Jesus' Bible, it was the Old Testament. So the Apostles' Creed is reacting to that and saying, no, we'll take the whole thing. We have a particular people that God is revealing for all of humankind what God wants to do. Baptize them into the name of all of God, Father, Son, Spirit. This creed's used as the affirmation of what people believe. Now, I must admit, I say this, and I've said it most of my life. I learned it in Sunday school. I learned to say it in church. We used to say it often in worship 
And we will say it today, if I remember to call you to it, after the sermon. We say it as a reminder, but when I go through the particulars, sometimes I'm not believing all of it, all the time. Baptism is not merely an invitation or initiation into a club or a fraternity. It's more than getting wet. Baptism does something. You're baptized into the name of something. It comes from uh, the world of banking. This idea of being baptized in the name of, it's into the account of, or I'm transferred to another account. I've come under new management is a way of talking about what baptism has meant in ancient times. I'm being transferred into God's family. This family represented in this remarkable relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. We're invited to walk along with the guide together, receiving lifelong, life-giving power to overcome death. We're moved from a world where we are powerless to change the course of life to being on course with the one who made all things, redeems all things, empowers all things. This God, the loving God of all time, who has had us in mind from the beginning, is the counter to Marcionism. That we only need a little bit. I don't know how many uh, people sit in church and they say all these words, and yet practically in their lives, they just jettison most of them. I can tell you how many, I can't even tell you how many times I've talked to people that say, you just need the love of God. That's enough. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, in the section called The Three Personal God, says this, all analogies fall short and none do justice to the idea of the Trinity. The closest is the oldest, We are invited into, as Australians might say, a walkabout with God. It's appropriate. We had an Australian earlier. A walkabout with God. I'm going to spend time with the guide. I'm going on a walkabout, a journey with God. I warned you, says Lewis, the theology is practical. The whole purpose for which we exist is to be thus taken into the life of God. Wrong ideas about what that life is will make it harder. Wrong ideas about what that life is, about who God is, will make being taken up into that life harder, not easier. I'll share just a little aside when planning on saying this, but but I... Um, I know that in the Mormon church, there are people who are Christians. Just like I know that in the Presbyterian church, there are people who are Christians. 
Not all people who are Presbyterians are Christians. I just think that in a non-Orthodox faith, it's harder to be taken up into the life of Jesus because the thinking's not straightforward. It makes it harder. I have a friend, he's a theologian, and he's a, he works with Fresh Expressions, which is a church planting organization in uh, the UK as well as here in the US. Uh, J.R. Briggs is a, uh, an affiliate professor at a very hip seminary called Missio Seminary in Philadelphia. He's uh, one of the up-and-coming thinkers in his world and influence. And he posted this note on Facebook last week. He said, nothing has messed with my theology more than reading the Bible. And it's like, that's right, that's right. Nothing messes with my theology more than being confronted again with the Scripture. And I'm not saying just, just how you've always looked at it, but even how someone might look at it differently from you, and you both trust in Jesus, and now you're going to wrestle with, do I have it right or not? Do I have it complete or not? What, what makes you think that some uh, theologian from the 19th century had the last word on it? As though all learning stopped in the 1800s or the beginning of the 20th century, or the end of the 20th century, as though all that we had to learn was arrested then and preserved perfectly well. I warned you, he said. He goes, again, nothing has messed with my theology more than reading my Bible. And this person responded to him and says, I've never had a theology just trying to love those who love Jesus. Beginning of story. That settles it. And J.R. responded back. With all due respect, we all, every human being on the planet, have a theology. We just may not know it yet, but everyone has one. Everybody has a theology, good or bad rudimentary, elemental, or sophisticated. We all have them. We all have perspectives. Most of them are formed out of our prejudices, and most of them are formed out of, uh, are, are formed out of what we already know, what, what we don't know. So unless you stopped learning and growing as a Christian, your theology should be changing. Doesn't mean that it, it abandons core beliefs. That's what the Apostle Creed's about. These are the things that people throughout the, the millennia have put as a baseline for what it means to believe in Jesus, to believe the faith. But it's a baseline to build on, not a baseline to preserve. God will preserve it. You need to grow from it. You need to grow in it and grow up. One of the continuing threats to our faith is the attempt and the temptation to shrink God into something 
we can manage. I remember J.B. Phillips wrote a little book years ago called Your God is Too Small. And in it, he talks about the fact that we end up having these gods that we can put in a box. And we think of God and we shove God in a box that then we can put on a shelf or we can manage it. And we can take God out of the box whenever it's convenient, but we can also shove him right back in. Because we want to, to think we can manage what God does. It just reminds me of that line from, from the Chronicles of Narnia where the children are introduced to the great Christ figure, this great lion, and they're hearing this from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver talking to them. And, and, and the question to the beavers is, well, is he safe? Is this lion safe? And, I, and it's just one of Lewis's great lines. And Mrs. Beaver says, safe. Of course he's not safe. Don't you hear what Mr. Beaver tells you? He's not safe, but he's good. Lewis goes on and writes this. If Christianity was something we were making up, of course we would make it easier. But it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with the fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if they have no facts to bother about. The goal of the confession, the goal of the presenting of this foundation of who God is, is that we might be drawn up into this God, that we might transfer our allegiance from this family to that family, that we might be empowered to live out all of our life, all of our days, with all of the people that God loves all the time. The goal is to be drawn up and in. Rather than get stuck where you are, as though there's nothing new to learn, as though there's nothing more to explore, would you simply approach the word, approach the confession, and simply say, teach me not confirm what I already know, but teach me. And if your foundation is sure, it'll put you in good place and good standing with God. Pray with me. God, these um, statements of old, sometimes are hard to grasp. 